particularly for my audience who tends to be a little more cerebral and probably scripturally literate, I wanted to open up a category for them that says the God that you love in scripture is a God who is being revealed through nature. And here's your invitation. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is author Hannah Anderson. I love good, thoughtful, well-crafted writing when it's succinct and the rhythm of the words comes together in such a way that it just sings. I also love nature and the created order. It too sings. Our episode today is a wonderful blend of those two loves. Today we're looking at Hannah Anderson's book, Turning of Days, Lessons from Nature, Season, and Spirit. Over video, I had a delightful conversation with Hannah from her home in Virginia. Hannah, why do you write? To figure out what I think, right? Isn't that... (laughs) There's some... I can't remember who said that, but there was an author who said she wrote to figure out what she thought, but I will claim it. I write to sort through my inner life. I find that I need to take it outside of me and put it on a page, have a little distance, move the words around, figure out if I actually believe the things that are looking back at me. (laughs) (laughs) And it is a personal process, but then I also just assume that other people are probably thinking or asking questions in similar ways of the questions I'm asking. And so I figure I can share my process with them. I get that. To write is to learn. So I'll think about it. How important is it for you to be honest in your writing? It's very important. But I've also found after writing 10 years that I can be honest 10 years ago about who I was then. And you grow and you change and honesty might look different 10 years later. And I found that to be somewhat hard because I can look back at things I wrote and understand why I wrote them in that moment or why I put a particular emphasis in a particular place or what I was attempting to say. But once something's published, it kind of becomes sealed Mm-hmm. In a way, I want to say it's timeless, but I don't mean it's timeless in the sense that it's classic. I mean, the reader encounters it outside of time or outside of when it was happening in your life. And so there's a danger there, too, that I think as an author, you just have to be willing to know those are the stakes that you're going to grow and progress. And what's more dangerous is if you didn't grow and progress. <laughs> That's right. And if you just locked yourself into a certain form of honesty or posture that you started at the beginning and then felt like you couldn't change, because then I think that would lack honesty. A friend of mine, Sarah Cunningham, she, I, I was making a reference to how I wish I'd written something different or changed something. And, and she just was like, of course, I wouldn't write the same book today that I wrote five years ago. I really hope I wouldn't, you know, it just yeah. it, she was really free about it of like, of course, I'm growing and changing. I don't know that readers necessarily would pick that piece up. No, because readers encounter your 
work in isolation and you have no control over which particular book or article they read first, and then they carry that experience back into everything else they're going to go discover of your work. <laughs> and, and they may not be able to get the timeline right. And, right. and it can be disappointing for them. You know, I've had that experience with authors where I encountered a favorite book of theirs and then went back and read things in different phases of their development. And I was like, well, uh, I kind of like the later you. <laughs> <laughs> which is very consumeristic and judgmental, but also what happens. You kind of you kind of grow up in front of mm-hmm. in front of others in a way. When, when I mention honesty, I pick up on a sort of integrity of do I believe this or is this real to you? You can mm-hmm. sleep well with it. That's important to you. Is that accurate? Yes, and I try not to say things that I haven't yet believed. So. There are plenty of topics I won't touch or speak on because I haven't yet kind of come to terms with what can I say truthfully or honestly about this. <laughs> and that's fine. I, I also don't feel a need to speak about everything because I know that some of the limits in my ability to be aligned with a certain truth or reality or whatever, that may just be my limit. You know, it may be something inside of me that needs to wrestle or grow or change or develop. And I'm, I don't need to speak about it. <laughs> I've sometimes wondered, so like culturally, I think it's, I think there's this assumption that you, you have to have an opinion on everything. Mm-hmm. And I've sometimes wondered if that's a kind of a modern phenomenon or if throughout history, mm-hmm. if people felt free to just go, not my subject or I don't, I'm still working on that one. And I so wish people would take that freedom today. Yeah. Well, I've noticed this even in what I call the Google age, where there seems to be at least an answer for whatever question you put into Google. You don't know which one, what you're getting back. You don't know what data or how to parse it. But it gives you the impression that everything is answerable. (laughs) And I like to keep a category that there are some things I don't know and some things that I'm not required to know. There are things that can have a truth or a true reality that my concession to it doesn't jeopardize it one way or another. And (laughs) (laughs) so I have to remember that like part of humility And walking through writing, especially writing publicly, is just like, hey, yeah, I don't know. It's not mine to know at this point. If I become convinced of something, I'll let you know. There's something so freeing about being able to say, I I don't know or I don't have an opinion. And just to be at peace with myself in that. I like it because it helps me not have to have an opinion about other people, too. It's not just about what do I believe? What do I think? But like when there are complicated situations in life, relationships or social things, I can say, hey, not on me. You know, I can still relate to people around me in a way that I don't have to stand as an arbiter of them. Hmm. And that's been a hard thing for me because I think the tradition I was raised in taught me to be an arbiter of everything. Um, And so maybe it's an intentional thing that I've kind of come to rest in to recognize that 
safety isn't necessarily found in passing judgment in everything. It's found in God. And we'll let mysteries be mysteries. <laughs> this ties in with nature. Your book, Mystery, Wonder. Could you share a little about your kind of draw to the wonder and mystery in nature? Yeah, I don't think I ever had a choice not to be drawn to nature because of the fact that I grew up in a rural space and my family's habits and practices that I grew up in. We were always outside. We were always gardening. I lived on a piece of land that had been part of a larger generational farm. So for me, this was just a way of being in the world. This is what it meant to be Hannah. It was to be outside playing, gardening in the woods. I probably took it for granted. I didn't know any other way of existing in the world. And yet when I went off to college, you know, 18, 19, I started meeting people who didn't exist in the world that way, who didn't always understand what I was talking about when I would make reference to certain phenomena or things that were happening at this particular season of the year. It really came back to me when I realized that that was a unique, a somewhat unique experience is when I met my husband or who would become my husband, Nathan, and he knew instantly what I was talking about because he had had a similar kind of upbringing and habits. And when I connected with him and we had this shared language, shared categories, I think that was probably one of the first times I understood that this was almost a language, a way of seeing, a way of being in the world. That has been a surprise in some respects. Um, but then also, I don't think either of us understood that it was a gift. Hmm. And so when we finally, you know, two decades later, worked on a book together, Turning of Days, we felt like it was our chance to take what had been given to us as a gift and kind of unpack it and give it back to people and invite them into a way of observing and being in nature that felt very natural to us, but wasn't necessarily um, as common. How are you in nature in terms of observing and being? Well, I always, there's so much going on. It, 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 we say nature, right? We say creation, but but when you step outside particularly, there's so much happening in one moment. And I think what I love about the way creation works together is the the way everything depends on everything else and the way everything is interconnected and this this kind of wholeness to it where everything, you can't separate out one part from the others, that there is a divine design for everything to work together. And I think maybe as human beings, we tend to see ourselves as opposed to like creation or nature, like we almost have sealed ourselves off from it rather than seeing ourselves as part of this larger, pulsating, life-giving community. It's so wondrous to me to see that design, to see that integration, to know how one thing affects another, and then to be part of that, to be in the middle of that. I think 
one of the images that kept coming to my mind as I was working through this is as a human being within creation, we're not like over it, looking down on it. We're in the middle of it, almost like we're in the snow globe. You know, we're right in the (laughs) middle of it, surrounded by all of these things and part of it. So that's wondrous to me. I love that the design, the goodness, the integrated nature of how everything depends on everything else. You see that in seasons. If you're lucky enough to live in a place that has seasons. That's true. That's true. What is it about seasons that you're drawn to? Seasons are not entirely predictable, but they are stable. We have so few things in our lives that are naturally liturgical, right? That these cycles, human beings really need cycles and patterns that they can begin to anticipate and predict for their own stability. And and we try to build that back in, you know, throughout church history. We have liturgical calendars. Even in civil life, we have days that we mark and patterns of this comes next, and then we have this celebration. But the thing about seasons that I love is that you can anticipate what's coming because you've experienced it before. So there's enough stability that you know it's coming, but it's also not entirely predictable. You don't know exactly what day it will start to feel like fall. Like, you know what day on the calendar it is officially fall. (laughs) But you'll wake up one day and the air will be a little cooler. The sky and the light will be slightly different. And you'll say, oh, it's fall. It is now fall. There's a level of anticipation, I think, that's just beautiful, but it's also stable. And when I think of my own life in terms of seasons, rather than this linear kind of, you're just walking this road and you don't know where it ends up and you're always not sure what's coming next. Seasons give us a sense that, no, there are these cycles, not just in the natural world, but in our lives. And you can kind of get your bearings. Where am I right now in this moment? Where am I in a certain cycle or a certain season? And I think that gives you a little more sense of knowing okay, I can anticipate what might be coming next. I don't know exactly when the season ends. I know it will end. I know there will be movement into something else rather than it just dragging on in front of you. The sense of hope, anticipation. Yeah. It's interesting. I lived in Florida for four years and that was my sense of when I moved there of I'm losing seasons, but oh no, they're there. You just just Mm. have to pay attention a little. That was quite fun actually to begin to notice the changes in plant mm-hmm. life and, and animals and such. Mm-hmm. Make the connection between your experience growing up and appreciating nature and scripture. I was formed a lot of habits, a lot of patterns um, in the natural world. That was one piece of my childhood. But I was also raised in pretty traditional um, setting in terms of church three or four times a week, saturated with scripture, good old King James Bible scripture. So I've got the King's English (laughs) in my head. And just massive amounts of that repetition of language and patterns of thought, not even like the the way some folks might proof text the scripture and say, well, this verse says that, but more like 
these are the rhythms and the habits of the way the scripture speaks and how it reveals who God is. And so I had these dual experiences of being saturated with in general revelation or what creation, how it was speaking, the paradigms and the kind of shape of communication from nature at the same time that I was being given more specific revelation or the paradigms and the the shape of the way the scripture spoke about God. And so for me, those laid on top of each other very nicely. And there was not ever a disconnect between what I'm experiencing of God in nature isn't somehow the same God that I am encountering in scripture. And, and in some ways, they moderated each other and they helped explain each other. And so for me, that was just such a gift to have that dual process of formation and to see that there are truths that are propositionally stated in the scripture. And yet that same thing takes shape and form and embodiment within creation in a way that I can observe and experience to be a part of, like I am in the middle of the seasonal change. So the scripture tells me that God is faithful. It tells me that he is faithful like the seasons are faithful, but then I'm living through the experience of the seasons. And I'm learning that at a deep, deep level, physically and emotionally. And so it comes together for me a bit more in the sense that that's not for me just this abstraction that God is faithful or God acts this way. There's this truth that goes beyond just what the scripture says because I've experienced it in nature. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. What are some rhythms, practices for you being in created order? Well, it's to be in created order. I think it's very easy, even for folks like me and my husband who were raised in rural spaces who love this deeply. Um, our world doesn't necessarily shunt us that way, or our society doesn't. It's very easy to be distracted by everything else that's happening and not to just take time to to be out in creation where you have space to observe and think and rest in it. Um, so for us and for me, it's just a matter of making sure that I have time and space to be out. And, and it's one of the things that my husband and I regularly are like when we are finding ourselves particularly stressed, we'll be like, when was the last time you went for a walk or my husband's a birder and I'll be like, when was the last time you took a couple hours and you were just out watching birds? And sure enough, you know, like if it's, it's been a while, that alone will, <laughs> that'll solve a lot of stuff just to have that space to be out and to, to take a different pacing to, it, it's slowing down, but it's, it's not slowing down in the sense that there's less going on when you're out in creation. It's that you're changing what you're engaging in. So for me, it's just a matter of making sure that that is happening and making sure my kids are out taking time as well. Beyond that, you know, we have our yearly patterns of we garden and we, we have these cycles throughout the year of 
Now's the time to put in the seeds. Now's the time to harvest them. Canning season has been something in my life for uh, since I can't not remember canning season being part of my life. And so when that comes around, it brings with it all of these other things that I don't know if I could have learned them anywhere else. Hmm. It's one of the statements I'll have is I, f- I feel more human. Mm. There's a there's a grounding, but it's like, oh, right. There's a homeostasis of sorts of, right, here, here we are. I forgot about this. Right, exactly. And I think part of it is reminding yourself that you are part of something larger and the, the limits of your power. It's comforting to me because it feels like it's a relief to be part of something larger and not to have so much depending on you. I think within our work, within our families, we get this level of stress just because we feel like, oh, I have to make this happen or I have to you know, take care of these things and be responsible. And for me, getting out, whether it's just a walk or is going out with my husband birding, there's this sense of, <laughs> yeah, remember there was this whole big world that in no way was depending on you. Like you are welcome <laughs> to enter into it and your presence is a gift here, but in no way did this box turtle really need you to show up today, <laughs> you know? Okay, you just made a connection for me because I love storms. I mean, all storms, mm. hurricane, blizzard, thunder, like, and I think that's it because I, I'm just small and I, and I kind of lean into that and there's a dependence. I can't control it. And that's clear. And that's a good thing until it becomes dangerous, of, of course. Tell me a little about how, how your book, Turning of Days, came to be. I had actually written a book about four years ago called Humble Roots in which I was exploring the idea that humility is the road to peace, that a lot of our restlessness and anxiety is because we are overextending ourselves and not embracing limits. And so humility became this pathway to to groundedness and a sense of accepting your created limits. And one of the metaphors really overextended metaphors that I used in the book was botanical imagery. So every chapter had a different reference to a botanical phenomenon. And I found that readers just loved the book. And what they really loved, I mean, they appreciated the conversation about humility, but what they really loved was nature. They loved the metaphors and the images and the illustrations. And that, I think, was the first clue that maybe I understood that my experience, my husband's experience, could be a gift to people in ways that allowed them to access something that they didn't necessarily feel they had a pathway to. So when I was thinking about another book, I kept coming back to the fact that readers really responded to this, and it seemed to fill something for them. I mean, I had readers writing me saying, I read your chapter on heirloom apples and I went out and I bought an apple tree or I planted tomatoes for the first time. And so there, it was moving past, I love this, to this is actually changing my life. And so I wanted to give more access to that and, and give more of what seemed to resonate so deeply with readers. And I also wanted to, particularly for my audience, who tends to be a little more cerebral and probably scripturally literate, 
I wanted to open up a category for them that says the God that you love in scripture is a God who is being revealed through nature. And here's your invitation. And so what I did with this book is I almost turned it inside out so that nature was taking a center stage rather than being the example or the illustration for other um, principles. I wanted nature to take center stage and then to work backwards through that to here is the deeper truth, here is the deeper reality being revealed. And I also wanted it to be, I wanted it to be essays because I wanted folks to have permission to stop and think and consider and go out and not just read through the book as kind of an informational, you know, I didn't want it to be as rhetorical. I wanted it to be an invitation out into nature. I wanted it to inspire people to get out and to start to see things for themselves in this way. I have a question I'm curious to hear your opinion on. This year in Colorado, the wildflowers were just off the charts. And so I decided to start trying to learn their names and got me a couple books. And, and it was actually quite harder than I thought. I'm, I'm not even trying to learn the Latin, just, you know. And also I started doing with trees and I'm really slow at it. But I found that in being able to name it, it enriched my experience of it. Is this a similar experience for you or am I on the right path? I think so. What I know, I, I have lots to still learn, but a lot of what I learned, I learned from other people who would be walking with me or point out something and say, that plant is, you know, whatever it was. That, that's ironweed or that's Queen Anne's lace. So for me, a lot of the process of learning plants was a communal activity. And it was me and the person in the plant, you know, so there was this, again, that kind of coming together of identifying something that was good and beautiful and naming it and in naming of it, recognizing its goodness and its beauty. And so I think part of what we do when we learn names, I mean, we do this with people, we, we're distinguishing them. We're saying, I, I see you as this distinct thing that has distinct goodness, and I'm going to speak your name because you're not this faceless object. And, and I think there's a sense, too, when we do know the names, not just to catalog them or to count how many we know or how many birds we've seen in a year, but when we know them, there is something that distinguishes them for us that it's an observational question and maybe it's more about changing us and our disposition toward them. That ironweed is going to be as beautiful as it was, whether I recognize it or not. But when I see it and I name it, um, it changes me in a way. That's good. Do you have a piece from the book maybe connected to fall or winter that you'd be willing to read to us? I'm sure I can find something. Did you have one that stuck out to you? Hannah, I actually like it all. <laughs> I mean, there's just, <laughs> it's, it's just... I'm like, I'm flipping through saying, well, I don't know which one. There's something about fall. I mean, they all have a really important piece, but it it's a movement towards a kind of a hibernation or a, it has mm -hmm. a death yep. to it that yes. often... I'm glad you picked up on that. Mm, mm -hmm. I used to hate fall because I, I like summer mm -hmm. and warm weather and I've, I've come to just, okay, 
this is a space where I can slow down a little. And yes. And then of course spring comes and then I and then it's a space where I speed up. Yep. I'm out more and doing things yep. and I've come to really value the rhythm to it. That is something I, I do wish if people were more attuned to natural rhythms, even to rhythms of light, that we could take it as an invitation. Like this is the time we have permission to slow down. There's plenty of time for us to be busy and active in different parts of the year. But when it starts to get darker, when it starts to get colder, that is like, <laughs> like what more of a sign do you need to stop and go <laughs> into your house? <laughs> But we have electric lights and we have coats and we have all of these other things that we can just keep going at the same pace. And I love a good snowstorm precisely because it forces us into a place where, where we're stuck and we finally have to get the message. Um, but I wish people had more. I wish they felt more permission to just say, you know what? It's a rainy day. I don't have to do very much today. Mm -hmm. I lived in Michigan for a number of years. And that was one of the things I loved about winters. I'd, I'd be sitting in my office and my, my work was pretty much done. And here's the snow starts falling and I go, I think I'm just going to go home and mm -hmm. just going to, you know, sit around and exactly drink some tea and talk with my wife. Or... It, it's sad that like all of creation has to come together to tell you to do that. <laughs> but <laughs> it is. <laughs> but I think people who heed it get the benefit. So I I could read anything from Fall or Winter. Maybe the way I direct it is, is there a part that you like? I mean, sometimes I write stuff and I read yeah. it back and I go, oh, wow, that was really, mm -hmm. really good. I do like the last one. I, I have this slight obsession with graveyards and dying. Do it. Um, yeah. So let me read a little bit from that one. It's been a few weeks since Mr. Dalton came with his tractor to turn the garden under. After we picked what we wanted, we took down the electric fence that rims the perimeter and left the rest of the wildlife to forage. The garden was far from neat, full as it was of broken vines, rotting pumpkins, and dried corn stalk, but it contained its own kind of bounty. Then, when everyone and everything had had their fill, our neighbor up the road came to till the remaining vegetation into the earth. And with that, the growing season was over. But the work is not over. The work of late fall being the work of enriching the ground. It is the hidden work of decomposition and decay as microorganisms, insects, and bacteria break down organic matter and turn it into life-giving soil. And in a reversal of everything we've been doing to that point, instead of trying to keep plants alive, we now assist their decay. We use autumn's fallen leaves and a summer's worth of grass clippings to mulch. We continue to compost and find ways to return nitrogen and vital nutrients to the ground. But the real work will happen in darkness, where what was once alive returns to the earth that gave it life. Thinking of all that's happening in the soil right now, I can't help but think of my own turning under, my own breaking down. The scripture tells us that we came from the earth and we will return to the earth, and science tells us that our bodies are made from the very minerals under our feet. I think of the old cemetery that sits about 300 yards from this garden. 
There's another cemetery in our community and one by the church, but the one nearest us is a family cemetery used by those who work the ground that now holds them. I attended a burial there last summer. Eula still lived on the family land near where my family lives now, and in the last days of her life, Nathan would wander down the lane to visit and pray with her. She'd been ill for a long time, her death certain. Some days I go up to the cemetery and walk among the dead. I do not find it a lonesome place. It speaks of grief and loss, but it is also peaceful, more garden than grave. The small plot is roughly an acre, shaded by a dozen trees, oaks, juniper, and cypress. And in spring, the graves are covered with periwinkle. But today in late fall, they're blanketed in leaves, pine needles, and acorns slowly burrowing their way into the earth. I walk through the graves carefully so as not to walk on the dead. To do so, my mother taught me, is disrespectful. In most places, it is easy enough to navigate the bodies under my feet, their loved ones having had the foresight to mark them with both head and footstones. But in older sections, I find it impossible. There are too many unmarked, untended graves, too many stones decayed, washed away by wind and rain, to not find myself standing on the shoulders of the dead. Everything, it seems, is destined to return to soil, bit by bit, grain by grain, to return to the earth from which it came. Hannah, that's, that's beautiful. I really like that. Thank you so much for today. I really appreciated this. Well, thank you for having me on. And that was Hannah Anderson sharing from her book titled Turning of Days, Lessons from Nature, Season, and Spirit. You can find out more about Hannah and her work at her website, sometimesalight.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. And while you're on our website, you can find a couple of articles from Hannah, as well as the latest episode of our other podcast, Friends in Formation. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. This work is made possible by the generosity of donors like you. Thank you. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events and our institute. Visit our website, renovare.org. And if you find this work helpful, I encourage you to leave us a review. We do love hearing your questions or thoughts. You can email podcast at renovare.org or tweet at renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well.